0: Petty of AmplifyMD, and here today with another session of The Seamless Connection is Dr. Ryan Grant, CEO and co-founder of VORI. Uh, Ryan, would love to have you introduce yourself to our audience this morning.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Um, Ryan Grant, a neurosurgeon by background, spent some time at Yale, then got recruited to Geisinger Medical Center to be their main scoliosis complex spine surgeon on their main campus, and left my practice during the pandemic to focus on fixing the broken musculoskeletal orthopedic care delivery model. You no,
0: know, and it, there's so many things I love talking to you about, but I guess one of the ones I haven't asked you about before is what brought you to medicine and healthcare in the first place? So not VORI, not being um, you know a surgeon, uh, not your particular field of specialty, but just just healthcare. Like, do you remember kind of if there was this particular moment or uh, anything that kind of sticks out in your
1: head? No, it's a great question. I remember, being very intrigued about medicine since I was a child, Um, anatomy books and the TV shows of the day and liked to watch surgery where you could find it on television It never bothered me when you're having dinner to to study or look at anatomy. So I was always fascinated by the human body. Um, Then has got more involved in medicine um, in, uh, in terms of experiences. Liked being able to come into somebody's life, try to make them better, and for them to be able to return, hopefully, to the life they used to have or to a better life, and got more and more involved with medicine. So ever since I can remember, um, and don't know a specific moment, but it's been there since day one.
0: No, that's fantastic. So when you went into medicine and your med school, and the reason i bring this up is we have a lot of... Students right now, and we have a lot of um, folks just in the medical space deciding what to go into. And we've talked about this before in terms of um, potential shortages or misallocations of physicians into different specialties versus primary care versus others, right? That's a hot topic in healthcare overall. So one, I wanna dive into that with you, but as you were deciding what to go into as your field of practice, how did you decide to end up in MSK?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Fell in love with the brain originally, so on the neurosurgical side. So um, for my own temperament, like to be able to fix things and operate, work with my hands. So eventually um, being able to operate became something that brought quite a bit of joy, but also like to have things in terms of my own temperament, close things out. So I like to have, for that better word, a project. And then you can say it's complete, which becomes sort of surgical cases, the my own, person, personally, of building relationships that would last 40, 50 years with a patient on the primary care side didn't do it for me. Um, not something that I was attracted to. And then actually, most of the medical specialties was not something that actually gave me um, joy. I liked the medicine, and I liked going into like the ICU and doing the deep dive and the physiology, but building a long-term relationship with an individual patient um, didn't excite me but um the operating room was very fun that felt much more like home and we calm cases when the case is done eventually the patient graduates from your practice and that's very rewarding and that was much better for my my type of temperament
0: yeah, no, that that's fantastic. Um, so tell us a little bit about Vori and, and kind of what made you realize what the problem was out there. I know you and I have talked a little bit in terms of how health um, health systems, hospitals are incentivized to actually increase surgeries, right? And because we talked about how, you know, would you ever partner with the health system uh, via Vori? And you're like, well, actually, we're probably misaligned on that front. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit further so the audience understands how, how systems yeah. think about, you know, MSK, how I think about surgeries, how that impacts bottom line versus potentially misaligned incentives
1: for cost versus care. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, MSK meaning musculoskeletal or orthopedics. As we take a step back, lower back pain is still the top cause of years lived with disability across the entire planet, even post-COVID. It's one of the top Google searches. Now, depending on what you actually, who you actually want to read, Lancet, Pain Medicine, Harvard Business Review, Centers of Excellence, surgical models, you'll find that people report at least 50% of the spine surgeries, which is back mostly, are inappropriate or not evidence-based across the planet. Did you say 50%? percent 25- 5, zero? Five zero, yes. Um, great articles in Harvard Business Review 2019 have studied this. This has been studied by lots of auditing groups. This has been published in premier academic journals. Uh, literature tends to hover around 25% for knee and 10 to 15% for hip. We could spend... A semester of how we got here as a society this is not a united states problem. You find something similar in canada europe singapore australia um, um etc but if the average health system does quite a bit of non-evidence-based inappropriate surgery i think incentives pushed us here over time but that's the norm now so how do you think all the clinicians come out if you train in a system that that's the norm yeah Nobody in two thousand twenty three at large is trying to be malicious. And how us surgeons make decisions is how we were taught to. So if you spend ten years with your mentors, Dr. Chang, Dr. Pete Meyer, Dr. Abid, teaching you how to do a, a surgery a certain way and how you pick on who to do it on, that's mostly going to be how you practice. You'll learn more as you as you evolve as an attending and then it get into practice. But we're really products of our environment so what you find um, as you start to audit deep across the united states and other countries is there's a failure at the medical education system of teaching appropriate evidence-based care and a lot of the hospitals that actually train folks no yeah not trying to be they're not trying to be malicious but they have built business models over many many decades post the war that are based on facility fees and fee for service revenue and for those who've studied medicine or any of clay christiansen's work they are classic innovators dilemmas they have built business models that keep the lights on and you see during covid turn off elective surgery fill the hospital to 130 percent capacity and practice just medicine they can't make money average us hospital can't make money practicing medicine, period, even if it's at 120% capacity. So we've really built infrastructure around procedures. Anything that disrupts procedures and potentially threatens the health system's bottom line makes it very difficult for the health system to innovate. Is If innovation requires bankruptcy or complete restructuring, most people aren't going to do that. That is, by definition, the innovator's dilemma.
0: So we've got a situation now where hospitals are, their bread and butter, and as opposed to practicing medicine, like we just talked about, E&M consults, your typical kind of taking care of the sick person versus procedures, whether elective or otherwise, is where they're actually getting the funding to keep their doors open, right? So how do you go from that to this movement now to push everything to the outpatient setting, to move to a risk-based model, to move to value-based care? How do those align, um, both on inpatient?
1: That's and- a- It's a great question. So the thesis of VORI is the care model's broken, given how much unnecessary care, but taking a step back to your question of outpatients. So if you actually take all these unnecessary surgeries and move them into ambulatory surgical centers, ASCs, if you actually do a normalization of the data for prevalence, incidence of musculoskeletal orthopedic conditions, and look at costs, costs are actually rising. We've given people easier access to the broken care model. So even though the unit economics are actually better per surgery as an outpatient, utilization is increasing. And so costs are actually rising. Um, and this has been studied this year, last year. So we actually gave people easier access to the public, to the broken care model. So we've actually made it worse, um, as a society.
0: So talk about Uh, misaligned incentives, right? Talking about misaligned incentives. It's if you, if you make a bad thing easier to do, they're just gonna do more bad things.
1: Right. There's more. It's unlimited car washes. People wash their car more. It's the, that's what we've done on the surgical side. And so it's taking a step back uh, on our side is our thesis is the care model is broken. Average primary care provider, not that well-trained in musculoskeletal orthopedics. On the surgical side, us spine and orthopedic surgeons, we're not that well-trained in a non-operative conservative arm. I have no formal training as a fellowship trained spine surgeon in non-operative conservative spine, period. Zilch. Um, we're taught to be surgeons. It's like asking the heart surgeons to do cardiology. The heart surgeons don't know cardiology. They're a heart surgeon. And so we use the wrong specialty provider, the main referral in the United States at least for the first physician specialist at large for back, neck, hip, knee, shoulder is right to a surgeon. That is the main referral pattern. And if you did that in the heart sector, You'd expect a rise. If you sent everybody to a chest pain to an interventional cardiologist or a cardiothoracic surgeon, there's going to be more procedures. So first is, are we using the right provider? No, we are not. Our surgeons have also trained the market because most people enter the, enter the system through their primary care provider. Average surgeon will not see a patient, this is for back, neck, hip, knee, shoulder, from a primary care provider referral without an image. So what you see is Overuse of imaging or violation of evidence-based imaging guidelines over 80, 85% of the time. Nobody practices evidence-based medicine. We over-image. Part of that is because of the way we've actually forced PCPs because we won't see the referral. And then in between these two physician specialists is physical therapy necessary, but insufficient to get people better. So really, are you practicing in care teams? Are you using the right providers? Then the next thing is to flip medicine on its head. We train clinicians to be physician or clinician centric. We do not have a patient centric health system. And I haven't really found a medical school or residency that teaches people to be patient centric still. And what do I mean by that? We still talk to patients as, as, as if it's their fault when they violate me, the physician's care plan. Is the patient adherent or compliant with what? a physician care plan we still blame the patient even in the digital health world what's the compliance rate what's the non-adherence rate versus what's the patient's obstacles are they did their car break down did they lose internet access did they lose their job like why can't they what are their obstacles to participating in care and trying to help them solve that we never ask that at large we just blame the patient for being non-compliant
0: so we don't we're not taking that extra step down to look into it so from a surgeon's perspective, right? From your background, what made you want to step in to this gap, if you will, in kind of appropriate incentives for the system and appropriate setup of care, it sounds like, right? So you're in that actual group that benefits from more surgeries. So what made you kind of flip around and look at like, no, actually I wanna change it and potentially have result in less surgeries. How, does, how did you make that kind of mental shift?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um... One is, are we doing the right thing for humanity? So, went into medicine to help people. If we're cutting open people to feed a bottom line, that is disturbing, just to be blunt. And two, nobody talks about how many people get hurt from surgery. It's not, oh, we dropped the ice cream cone on the on the ground, we'll just do another ice cream cone. <laughs> There's a complication rate. So um, all in and current data, this is more skewed towards Medicare. The death rate for spine surgery is one in a thousand. So there's a death rate, there's a paralysis rate, there's a spinal fluid leak rate, there's an infection rate, there's people who get worse. There are a lot new pain, worsening pain. And so these unnecessary surgeries, it's not just people not getting better. How many people got hurt on our watch? And so if we're here to do no harm and do the right thing, we've lost our way as a medical society or as an enterprise of, if the care model's broken, then the people who are getting hurt are fellow human beings. And I would argue that that's not ethical. Now, again, people are not trying to be malicious, but we need to take a step back of how we got here and stop making excuses as a society that it's okay to cut people open, to feed a bottom line, because it keeps the lights on. That is disturbing.
0: Yeah. So if you're switching, so basically your goal now, and what you've kind of made your mission at, at is to determine the appropriate care plan for the patients, and, and an appropriate care plan that they're compliant with, it sounds like. And I, and I don't know if you use a different word than compliant, if you don't like that word, but you know, to keep them on the path to recovery, if you will with the ones that need surgery and i'm sure it sounds like there's some percentage that need an appropriate level of surgery right
1: yeah we refer about uh, just under three percent of our of our uh, patients get referred on to surgery so surgery has its place i'm not anti-surgery i love surgery
0: how does that compare to like a normal referral pattern for surgery
1: um some primary care providers we work with have a over a 30 percent referral rate to the surgical arm much lower not all of those on either arm go on to get surgery, but quite quite a bit lower. And instead of the compliant, we, we think about what matters to the patient. We build a care plan of what matters to me as an individual. So Nancy comes in with 10 out of 10 back pain. The most important thing in her life is walking her kid to school every day. Her care plan is literally walking Tommy to school. And what do we need to do to get her back to the thing that she loves most? And what, what motivates Nancy will be different that the motivate somebody else to keep them engaged and participating in the plan. And then we can write evidence-based non-narcotic prescriptions and order imaging, if it makes sense and all sorts of stuff that you would find in traditional medicine, but it's a really holistic point of view where us, the care team is here to serve the patient.
0: Mm -hmm. When people think of physical therapy or kind of the the, um, aspects of it that you're describing in terms of this care plan to get Nancy walking her son back to school, they think of a very hands-on, physical, in-person kind of solution. How are you guys doing this virtually, and how are you able to um, get the same results or comparable results virtually when you're not actually able to put hands on? Or are you? I don't know. Maybe it's it's a hybrid model.
1: Yeah. Well, we can get better results sometimes, and so we don't. It's not virtual versus in-person. We we we. That's just care. Our secret sauce is how we practice. That can be done in person. That can be done virtually. You can do a lot of things virtually. A lot of things um, you can actually make a more interactive exam virtually. Um, you can interview our care teams, both on the physical therapy or physician side, or coach side, or navigator side. They've had to actually start practicing differently. It's actually more fun. It's you have to be more interactive. You have to get patients to do different types of things, versus a traditional physical exam is very passive, where the clinician is moving things around, getting the patient much more active. We found quite a few patients who actually like it better. It's not for everybody. And there are some things that belong in person, but 98% of things you can do virtually, but then it's also making sure you do a holistic model. And so we'll take chronic pain as an example, chronic pain, back, neck, hip, knee, shoulder, but let's stick on back pain. Cause that's the most prevalent is rarely a structural issue in the back. Sometimes it is, but the prevailing evidence in 2023, and there's even a new paper in Lancet last week, it's an overactive nervous system, the brain rewired from having continuous pain signals to it. And the analogy would be depression. How do you treat depression in 2023? What's the best evidence-based standard of care? Talk therapy plus or minus some type of medication. Well, what's talk therapy you're using structured language from someone who's trained in that to get the patient to think differently about how they experience their environment and their own thoughts so that the brain will rewire and that's how they actually come out of depression and so that same concept actually belongs in all of medicine and so it's a holistic point of view is how is nancy experiencing her environment how is she thinking about the pain what is her fear? Did you actually take that into account and deal with that? And so really it's a, it's a holistic care model. Others in non-musculoskeletal spaces doing something similar would be like, oh, she in the GI space, holistic brain body. And then you start to see that the secret becomes right care team, patient-centric. Did you actually take in a holistic point of view? And you can get quite a few people better that the traditional system cannot because they're only focused on the tissue. And they forget to take care of the thoughts of the individuals actually having.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So do you feel like health systems, payers, kind of America's healthcare, care, um, you know, players overall, do they get this? Because this is very challenging and this is kind of flies in the face of the financial model of a lot of vested interests. Right. So I'm wondering what kind of acceptance you've seen, what kind of pushback you've gotten or, or people realize, hey, you know, at the end of the day, the value is actually here. Um, and even if it kind of turns things on their head, it might actually be a kind of painful change worth making.
1: I think the, uh, the patients want to get better. So when you can offer something that they can get better in that they haven't done previously, that's very powerful. Growing number of health plans see the potential of the market to still immature and moving to, towards that direction. The first was value-based primary care. Then it was value-based kidney care, specialty care, and now it's starting to become musculoskeletal oncology. People are moving towards that. And I think health systems philosophically agree this is the right thing to do. However, if it drives down unnecessary surgery, they're not incentivized to do it. So the current economic models that incentivize procedures, there's no reason or no incentive for a health system to restructure itself that will hurt its bottom line, even if it's for doing the right thing. That's again the innovator's dilemma. So as long as society and um, um, the government continues to pay the way it does and have misaligned incentives, no one's going to. No one at large is going to innovate towards doing the right thing. That's why you see all of the all of the new care models at large have come from not inside a health system. You had Oak Street start in the private sector. You had Iora Health, which is now one medical senior start in the private sector. You had Village MD start in the private sector and, and get married to Walgreens. You see Strive and Monogram in the kidney space in the private sector. You have OSHI and Vivante in the GI sector in the private sector. All of the care model innovation for the most part, is actually in the private sector, which tells you the status of the health system. If everybody has to leave the health system to truly push care delivery,
0: mm-hmm. when I talk to hospital CEOs these days, a lot of them are actually seeing the writing on the wall in the sense of the future of hospitals is more for these acute care situations, ICU, critical care, etc. Potentially, you know, any surgeries need to happen, but then they they are also seeing the fact that future growth and the future care of patients is gonna be happening in the outpatient setting, in clinic settings, um, you know, not in a hospital setting, even if it was traditionally done there today. Um, are you, do you see the same thing happening and do you see that buy-in from hospitals in an actionable way yet, or is that just something that they're seeing come down the road but aren't quite ready to embrace yet?
1: Yeah, and like, I know a lot of hospital CEOs and good people at large is, they will do things that's right for the patient that also fulfills the bottom line. So when the incentives are aligned, yes, hospital at home, let's go to the the house of the patient and do care there. Or, but if it's do the right thing, that's evidence-based and drive your finances to bankruptcy or negative margin, no board or C-suite's going to do that. So when the C- when the incentives are aligned, yes, magical things can happen. When the incentives are misaligned, that gets, goes right back to the innovator's dilemma. No one's going to at large disrupt their financial revenue model, even if it's the right thing. So that's a call upon the health plans, to a call upon United States government, CMS, to more quickly align the incentives to pull the human race forward. Otherwise, things will go very, very, very slowly or sort of stay status quo.
0: What do you think are kind of the the key blockers right now in terms of if you if you could wave a magic wand and change something about the system that you think is is getting in the way of these properly aligned incentives? What what would you pick as kind of the key blockers?
1: Uh, A lot of it's ourselves. It's the recalcitrance of the healthcare community to really have change at large. Like the people who attended VIVE and some of these other things, that's the minority. Most most, most, most people don't go to those innovative conferences or thinking that way. So that's the recalcitrance of the healthcare community at large to have change. The biggest blocker to the adoption of telehealth besides regulations was the providers. The providers referring or
0: the providers delivering
1: care on it? The providers delivering so McKinsey did a nice study of the, one of the biggest blockers or slowness of the adoption of telehealth was the providers didn't want to do it. They don't like change. Nobody likes change. So one is the recalcitrance of the healthcare community at large. Two is the heavy hand of regulations. And so um, national licensing, can we, like little things. It's been studied by CMS. It's been studied by health plans like United Ad nauseum that the copay is one of the biggest barriers to getting appropriate specialty care because people drop out because they get nickeled and dimed every visit. And then on musculoskeletal side, if someone's going to see physician and then need to do eight eight PT visits and each one requires $30 copay, average person, that's too much money. They're not going to do it. They'd rather go down the high cost route. So what are the little things that we can do that are low hanging fruit that's been studied for 30 years? that could actually change incentives. Why do we keep paying for inappropriate surgery? That's a that's a good question. All sorts of, of things of health systems, payers, providers actually working together to pull the human race forward um, would be great. Um, at large, they still tend to be relatively antagonistic towards each other, better than they were 30 years ago, but the, still the providers and the health plans, I wouldn't say are best friends. <laughs>
0: So you are, you know, you know, have a home or a previous home was at the Geisinger Center. Now, with the Kaiser-Geisinger merger that was recently announced, do you have any thoughts there in terms of two very innovative health systems um, or perceived to be very innovative? I'd be curious as to your perspective there and what you think that could mean for the potential for health systems to be more open to change like this, because I know Kaiser's model is very different compared to pretty much every other health system out there.
1: Yeah. It was interesting to see if that helps Um, both, both, both health systems lost quite a bit of money last year. And so I I don't have enough uh, in front of me to know where most of that came from, but systems who want to pull the human race forward, do the right thing. If they come together, can they, can you do the right thing, which is evidence-based medicine, drive value to the member, and then also have a positive margin, and move away for just being paid for volume only so actually fee for value and we'll see we'll see where that goes because again there's the pressures even if you're a value-based healthcare system still is a lot of money coming in through facility fee revenue because the most one of the most lucrative things to a health system still is fee-for-service facility fee which is the procedures
0: yeah 100 percent yeah I know we're coming up on time. Um, last question for you is what kind of what are you most excited about these days, whether it's it's personally, professionally, just for the healthcare system overall? What what do you see um, as giving a lot of hope and a lot, a lot of excitement, potential for joy as we head into the second half of 2023 here?
1: More and more people talking about actually wanting to do. We've talked about value based care for a long time and it hasn't really worked that well, but people talking about care model design, mixing that with alternative payment mechanisms how do we better help accountable care organizations and primary care providers on the, on the, from the specialty side? And does that care model delivery drive value first to the patient? Uh, didn't used to hear that conversation at all 20 years ago. Does the value go to the patient? Um, that's why we went to medicine. And so I think it gives me hope of the things that attracted most people to medicine when they were young. And then they got into what the practice of medicine really is like in the real world, and we're like, "Oh God!" Of uh, actually, can you actually practice medicine the ways that you had dreamed about before you went? Yeah,
0: well, that's 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 exciting. Well, I hope we will have our check-in at the end of the year and see that that at least part of that came true. I know healthcare moves very slowly, but um, but change does happen. So I think you and I are both evidence of that. So thank you again for sharing your morning with me. Really appreciate it um looking forward to catching up again soon
1: Thank you so much